This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Well, folks, welcome to part three of three in our lead up to the legislature series. If you've been following along, thanks so much for doing so. And if you're just joining, make sure you check out parts one and two with Premier Denny King and MLA Heath McDonald, respectively. Just as a refresher, for this series, we reached out to government, opposition, and third party to share with us some policy areas they would be focusing on in the spring sitting of the legislature. Just as a disclaimer, this episode was recorded on Tuesday, February 23rd, in anticipation of the opening of the legislature on February 25th. For this episode, we focused on four policy areas, the first one being affordable housing, with our special guest, we'll be chatting about sustainable solutions to the housing crisis, as well as the necessity of a rental registry. The second policy priority we'll be focusing on is green economic recovery. Here, we'll be chatting about what is a green economic recovery, as well as clean tech and public transit. Our third policy area will be social justice and equity. That'll be focusing on BIPOC anti-discrimination movements and policies, as well as senior care. The final policy area we'll be focusing on is poverty reduction. Here, we'll be chatting about the Poverty Strategy and Elimination Act, which is a bill that will be coming to the legislature this spring sitting, as well as how this act differs from the Poverty Reduction Action Plan, which is already in place. Now, if folks haven't guessed it already, our special guest is a former computer programmer, former executive director of the PEI Business Women's Association, owner and operator of the Solution Agency, Dog and Cat Mom, the MLA for District 11, Charlottetown Belvedere, opposition critic for social development and housing and economic growth, Hannah Bell. Thank you so much, Hannah, for being with us this evening. Our first question for you is, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm uh, looking forward to going back into the house. It's earlier than we usually do. So, uh, you know, the excitement of starting a sitting in February, it's going to be it's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some listeners, if, if this is, you know, the first time they're tuning in with Hannah, Hannah was actually one of the main MLAs who was pushing forward some of the major amendments to the uh, rules and regulations as to the uh, the schedule of the legislative sitting. So you're, you're definitely reaping the benefits of some of your work, uh, not some of your work, all of your work. So <laughs> that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny. I um I actually ran into uh, Stephen Myers today, and he was talking about you know going to be able to go home in the after the session and see his his babies, you know, at, at, and not just sort of when they're asleep. So, you know, everybody benefits um, from from having hours that are that are probably a little bit more human. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we're not working, but we can maybe choose a bit more flexibility where we work from. And and I'm not going to miss the 14 hour days. Um, <laughs> at the ledge um i have way better snacks in my fridge (laughs) (laughs) well that's awesome we're we're gonna take your word for that uh (laughs) definitely well actually now out of curiosity what's your favorite snack oh my favorite snack is um i love parma ham and Mm -hmm. um and old cheddar cheese and hummus 
Ooh, yeah. so, so garlic breast for the win, right? That's yeah. Oh, yeah. We have masks because that way nobody can tell how bad my garlic <laughs> breast is. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And and for MLAs tuning in, they can expect the Birmingham breath from Hannah in the upcoming <laughs> sitting uh, of the legislature. So um, we'll jump right in uh, yesterday. And of course, listeners will be hearing this episode next week. But yesterday was the state of the province address. And of course, Premier Denny King mm-hmm. uh, presented during the annual Rotary uh, meetings that present that. So what were your initial reactions with that state of the province address? Well, it's, it's a great opportunity to kind of get part one of three This in this kind of unique time. We're going to have, you know, we have the state of the province, which is often sort of quite sort of statistically heavy. You know, I know when I've been there in person in the past, I remember Wade McLaughlin doing one where he actually gave handouts with like graphs and things on it. So um, no handouts on this one. But yeah, it's part one um, where you get a teaser of sort of not just sort of what government is proud of or what some of their things are that they see as accomplishments, but also perhaps what's coming. Um, Obviously, part two is going to be the throne speech, which we're going to get on Thursday, and then the budget. Um, So the throne speech will set the vision kind of writ large, um, and then the budget will obviously give us those dirty details. But but there were some really interesting um, new projects that, frankly, that were a surprise, I think, to everybody, including some of the community partners who apparently didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I was a little shocked about... um, a couple of comments that the premier made that sort of implied that the housing crisis was fixed. So um, I'm going to be talking to him about that in a bit more detail. So, you know, I, th- I think um, you can interpret statistics in lots of different ways. And, and it's always interesting to see what lens people bring to them when they use them in something like, like this speech. It gives you a lot of hints around sort of um, what's to come. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think statistics are fun like that, where on paper you think it's black and white, but presented through the right lens, you can really have any perspective you want on it. Now, you mentioned, you know, um, housing, and that's coincidentally the first topic that we'll be chatting with you about today. Of course, for the last few years, housing has been one of the primary portfolios that has fallen kind of under you. So what have you been hearing on the ground? And has there been kind of a change in the nature and volume of concerns of people over the last few years? Yeah, and definitely housing absolutely has been um, one of my primary files. Um, it, it's funny, before I came into this role, it, it wasn't something I knew a lot about other than as a consumer <laughs> of housing. So it, it's been a, um, a pretty significant um, learning curve. I think we knew as the official opposition, um, even before we were the official opposition, so back when it was just a, a very small caucus of two, we knew that the, the housing was um, a really big problem. Uh, and in fact, I think we were, we were really the first ones to even talk about the as, as a crisis we, that that came from from our um, advocacy and and you know speaking up about it. We came out with the housing framework um, in 2018 which really came from that kind of deep dive of, of research and, and education that I'd been doing myself because I was hearing from so many people who were just saying, you know, that things are really going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and honestly, the housing crisis is, is a perfect storm in PEI where, you know, over a number of years, we moved from sort of a traditional vacancy rate and, and it was pretty easy to get an apartment that you could afford and um, move around if you didn't like where you were. And that shifted very, quite quickly in really, over 
five or six years or less to um, us hitting that 0.9% vacancy rate, which is when we hit the national media. Um, and, and what I'm hearing and have been hearing for years consistently is how this is, a, you know, a really what we call a wicked problem. It comes from a number of different factors that are all kind of coalescing together. It comes from um, government policy, where you know a strong, very strong um, policy of um, immigration, repatriation, mm -hmm. retention, mm -hmm. and economic growth was not matched by investment into the housing market in the right spaces. So if you want a whole bunch of people to move to your island, you need to make sure to have somewhere to live. That's a pretty straightforward, <laughs> it, you know, but, but we know also that the affordability of housing is a probably the worst part of the crisis. So not so much that you can't find somewhere to live, but you can see lots of places that you would love to live if only you had twice the amount of money that you have. Um, and, and that really speaks to that much broader challenge of the, of the widening gap between um, what people can afford who are working ordinary people and those who are um, have, have housing as a commodity. Mm -hmm. So the, there's a big difference between you, you needing a, ho a house or a space to live because it's your home and being able to use real estate as an asset that is an investment that you make money from. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that's one of those gaps that we see over and over again in lots of other things that we, that we work in. So it, it doesn't just show up in housing, it, it shows up across the board. Mm -hmm. But um, more so in the last, certainly COVID has has really, like it has for so many things, has has really um, put a spotlight on on those those inequities, on those really big gaps, the 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 ongoing challenge of availability and affordability is just getting worse and worse, mm -hmm. um, and the inability of or the reluctance. Um, of, of government to sort of take an active role because they don't want to interfere in the market um, is, is really not helping. In fact, it's actually hindering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you brought up a very good point earlier, which is that, you know, it's not simply a question of demand and supply at this point. There's also mm -hmm. the accountability piece. We've seen that the vacancy rate has actually been slightly increasing over the last couple of years. But, you know, at the same time, the prices of rent have been growing quite a bit. Now, you stated to CBC on January 13th that putting vouchers and rental supplements into the system is not a long-term plan. It's a short-term Band-Aid um, and recommended public housing as a viable option to tackle the housing crisis. Now, for our listeners, um, housing public housing is government-owned housing whose rental rate is prorated at 25 or 30% of folks' income. How do you think public housing as a public policy would impact the housing crisis on PEI? Well, again, another complicated question, but but one that we, we really have to talk about. And um, there's a couple of background pieces around that, I guess. One of them is, first of all, about the mobile rental vouchers and rental supplements. We spent $10 million on those in the last fiscal year, $10 million. And that is money that's being paid to landlords mm -hmm. um, to cover the difference between what somebody can afford and what the apartment actually costs. That absolutely is is essential right now because otherwise um the thousand households that get a rental supplement would not be able to afford to be where they live and and we would have again way worse of a crisis than we have now mm -hmm. but that does nothing to address the fact that we have a problem with 
how much people earn and how much they can afford, it also doesn't add any new housing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we know the core of our of our housing challenge here has has basically three main challenges. It has, you know, do we have enough of the right kind of housing? No. Mm-hmm. Do we have housing that people can afford? And do we have housing that's appropriate um, for the need? So, for instance, a family of six shouldn't be living in a one bedroom apartment, yeah. mm-hmm. but they are. So so vouchers are a short-term solution to help people who are already in housing stay housed Mm -hmm. we need to add capacity as well Mm -hmm. you mentioned that our vacancy rate has gone up slightly and it has but again devil is in the details so if we what the premier did during the speech on the throne was speak about it's great we've got you know a better vacancy right now but when all of those vacancies are in apartments that start at 1600 a month and higher Mm-hmm. Um, we are not adding capacity in the right place. Mm-hmm. So a vacancy rate that actually means there are empty apartments because people can't afford them doesn't address the challenge. What public housing does um, is, is provide housing rent geared to income, as you mentioned. So whatever you pay is 25 to 30% of whatever you earn. Mm-hmm. We see this particularly, the best example of this that people would recognize are provincially owned seniors housing complexes, mm-hmm. which are not long-term care homes, but they're apartment buildings, which are, you know, they have some kind of management because they're managed and owned by the province, but they make sure that seniors have a safe, appropriate place to live that they can afford. Keep in mind for seniors that if you only have a government pension, you're only taking home between $1,200 and $1,400 a month. And that's mm-hmm. all you'll ever get because obviously you're not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can't afford an apartment that starts at $1,600. It's just not yeah. possible. Yeah. That's what those seniors complexes do. And they're a perfect example of public housing. Mm-hmm. But we have only built 30 new seniors housing units in the last 20 years. Um, most of our, our public housing was built in the 1980s or earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we desperately need to invest in new um, and additional housing and not just for seniors. We really need housing that is um, publicly owned and managed for families, mm-hmm. for young adults, for um, people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a whole range of the kind of housing we need, mm-hmm. um, but government owned and operated, they don't necessarily have to build it. Government aren't the best at kind of doing big complicated projects. So it'd be great <laughs> if they actually gave the project to somebody. We can pay some really good developers. Um, and honestly, what we're seeing in other, in other jurisdictions is for example, in Toronto, they're buying existing buildings mm-hmm. and making them that, and those are publicly owned. They didn't have to build them. Mm-hmm. They go straight to the developer and say that building that you've got sitting right there, I'm, we're going to buy that yeah. and make it then a publicly owned and run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, I have many things like more I could say about this, but that's kind of the, the, the some of the key things in there is that vouchers are, are um, provide the support for people to remain where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or they can even move with it, but it doesn't create a new apartment or a new, a new home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last thing about that is not only it does cost us $10 million a year, then the, the problem becomes, what if we don't have enough money anymore to pay for those? What yeah. will happen then? Yeah. And then the third thing around those is um, we left $10 million of unspent money 
on how from housing budget capital housing budget in this last year mm-hmm. and for 10 million dollars you could build quite a few apartments mm-hmm. so so it's i'm i'm clearly not um, in, in in agreement that the housing crisis is is being addressed in any meaningful way any long term way mm-hmm. and every year we leave it it's just going to get worse mm-hmm. wow and and you know another piece to this whole housing uh, situation has been you know rent increases in between tenants and how do you find out how much the tenant prior to you had been paying um, if the increase between tenants is legal or not now on our episode with uh, Premier King, we mentioned the idea of establishing a rental registry on PEI, which doesn't exist right now in Canada, though it's in the works in Halifax and it has been brought up in Toronto. Now, he mentioned that he is open to being convinced about it. Now, you have been a very outspoken advocate for the inclusion of a rental registry in the Residential Tenancy Act. In addition to that, you had put forward a motion in the Assembly for the implementation of a rental registry back in 2019. And this mm-hmm. is a motion that had passed. So why do you think a rental registry is important and how do you envision this policy being implemented? Sure, yeah, and I'm really glad that you pointed out that we have actually already discussed and debated this at length in the legislature. In fact, I pointed out that uh, the new Minister of Social Development and Housing not only voted in favor of the motion, he spoke about how great it was as an idea. Um, so I hope that he would remember that now, but uh, yeah, it, it's, I think, I think there's, there's, always, there's always great reluctance for jurisdictions to go first. Yeah. Um, sometimes we like, you know, jurisdictions and, and politicians like to go first with something um, that they're passionate about if they feel that they've got the support for it there. It's an awful lot harder to go first if you're not sure that everybody's on board. Um, and one of the pieces around um, the tenancy legislation is, you know, it's complicated. It, it's, a, it's a really big piece of legislation. It's, it's clocking in at almost 100 pages. It is not a light read, um, you know, and, and uh the tenants know at the time that you know what, what matters to them, but they're not going to know or care about the contents of the legislation until it comes up and it bites them. Absolutely, yeah. you know. And this legislation is is so out of date, um, and and has been identified multiple times that it desperately needed to be overhauled. There was a whole set of of revisions that were supposed to have been done ten years ago that didn't get done. So legislation can and should be reviewed and updated on a regular basis. Um, saying all that, the bottom line is, is that, that reviewing and updating the Residential Tenancy Act, which with the new legislation would be called, is, is essential to re- retain the rights of landlords at, at, and in terms of them being able to run a business, but to improve and expand the rights of tenants, mm-hmm. which are underserved in the current legislation. IRAC is the body that, that enforces the legislation, but it is unable to do so in the current um, legislative framework. And it won't be able to do so under the new one either if there's no rental registry. So the legislation that's being put forward is flawed, mm-hmm. fundamentally flawed. Mm-hmm. Without a rental registry, there's no way to connect um, the action of a landlord from one tenant to the next tenant. Mm-hmm. And so the continued the issues that happen now with illegal rent increases and renovations will continue, mm-hmm. even though the le- overall legislation will be strengthened and improved. Um, there's a hole big enough to drive a school bus through it. 
So what a rental registry does is um, connects the, um, the, 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 the requirement um, for landlords to follow the, the law and the information about what's going on with that rental unit as tenants move and change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that then would allow IRAC to, to know um, with clear information what rent has been charged previously and therefore is it the new charge within the appropriate allowable increase have there been any challenges with things like fire safety which we've heard about just recently uh, or complaints around you know from about the landlord and their conduct whatever that may be mm-hmm. um, and and the rental registry would be a confidential but open to the public so you know, it would respect people's privacy, but would be available for the public to be able to view, which is really important, and would be part of the um, the administrative function of IRAC. And we saw too, just on that point, in terms of you were saying like it's hard to do something new when perhaps you don't feel as though, as a decision maker, there may be support or there may be criticisms. Um, and and just one example of that, we saw a grassroots movement to demonstrate the need of something such as a rental registry. And I keep checking this every single day because the numbers keep going up. Of course, the Twitter account and social media accounts, I should say, plural, my old apartment, which was demonstrating the grassroots effort to identify what the previous tenant uh, and the incoming tenant would pay. And so they would know what the difference is. And then that way they could identify if illegal increases to rent had taken place and then steps to address that. As of right now, there are 51,000 likes on Twitter Mm -hmm. and 10.9 thousand retweets and 129 comments. Uh, And that was on February 15th, so um, about nine days ago, I believe, or sorry, uh, eight days ago. So Mm -hmm. I think that just speaks to, and of course, we know social media is expansive and that's not uniquely, uh, you know, PEI, but just in terms of uh, folks who would be consuming that content that would be a custom or aware of rental practices and could be renters themselves or perhaps landlords themselves and see the value in that. So it's really interesting to see kind of that base level interest on that right here on PEI with that local uh, social media account. So hopefully moving forward, and and we know this was something that in our last episode with Premier King, uh, this will be coming forward in the fall. Uh, He did commit to that timeline. And so um, moving forward, we'll see if, if this is something that's included in that but we're going to shift gears next to the the green economic recovery which of course when we think of policy i am also like wow affordable housing also fits into green economic recovery but of course i'm not the legislature so i I won't make any assumptions but um my first question on this policy topic hannah would be how would you define a green economic recovery well, other than the obvious about the green, what we what we actually you know want to look for when we talk about a green a green economic recovery is one that's sustainable, mm-hmm. um, and that means living within our means, um, you know, both environmentally but also um, from a fiscally and and from a um, you know a, a socioeconomic context. So a green economic recovery means that for me that 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 all islanders in this case have the opportunity. Um, to participate in the economy in a way that works 
for them, which isn't going to look the same for everybody, but they have the opportunity to do so. But also that our economy is one that, that is able to, to, to work effectively for Islanders as we move forward into uncertain times. You know, and so what that looks like is one that's not only an inclusive economy that recognizes um, that we need different solutions that are that that address a lot of the barriers and challenges that keep people out um, now, but but and it also values the economic drivers that 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 are that are really true to who we are as islanders. It values agriculture and fishing and tourism, um, but it also it makes space for for new opportunities that allow us to participate globally and and really diversify. We, we have seen from COVID the risk that comes with, with having um, a, a less than diverse economy, you know, the, and that it brings real impact. So we need to find ways to support and strengthen, you know, those really valuable pieces about who we are in our identity as, as Islanders, but be open to, to the next new adventure that, that will really help kind of um, build and grow as we move forward. Mm-hmm. And and this is nothing new to the the Greens here on PEI. This is something that, you know you folks have been working on for a long time. Yeah. Of course, in fall twenty eighteen, the then third party, which of course was was the Greens, <laughs> uh, uh, both yourself and, and Peter, uh, passed the first piece of legislation. Yeah. Um, and and this was the bill to amend the Innovation PEI Act. And there was kind of two main pieces to this adding the creative and cultural industries to the act and specifically expanding the definition on renewable energy and this was to include clean technology so as this is something that you folks have been working on really since your kind of legislative inception here on pei how do you feel as though this amendment in 2018 to expand the the renewable energy piece set the policy stage for this green economic recovery now in 2021 and encompassing COVID and everything mm-hmm. moving forward. Absolutely, no doubt. I mean, it's it was um, a deceptively simple um, bill at the time. It was this, you know, like I think it was like 12 words or something. <laughs> really, really, really simple. But it was it was not just important because it was the first piece of legislation that we'd ever passed. It was important. Um, because it 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 allowed us to speak to things that really mattered to us and that it was an economic bill yeah it was a bill that that was about economics not what people would expect you know from us and it it really was you know set that context that said that we're more than than what you think we are at a time um and it's something that that i personally was hugely invested in because in my previous you know life uh, prior to politics um i worked with um you know uh, supporting investing and, and growing businesses both here in pei as the executive director of the business women's association but also nationally as part of start the startup canada network mm. so you know i I'm, I'm very clear about what needs to happen to to support and scale business and where those new opportunities are um, the creative and cultural industry for PEI exists whether or not we call it what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's again, it's an integral part of who we are. But by getting it named as a strategic sector, it allowed there then to be investment. It yep. allowed um, there to be the, the action plan that we've seen, which is having huge impact 
because we have now a whole department in Innovation PEI that is delivering on the strategic action plan. And we're seeing you know, really important things like an indigenous art bank, mm. uh, which you know, just makes my heart happy. <laughs> it's, it's, it, and, that, and you can trace that back. And that to me is, is you know, a hugely important part of, of, of how we tell our story about, again, about what we can be here. Mm-hmm. The, the clean energy aspect was because, you know, for years we'd had a very clear statement um, of, of renewables in, in our strategic sectors. Of, and that was what allowed for those massive investments in wind energy. If we hadn't had that, that correlation, we wouldn't have gotten the, the support to put the wind farms together. Mm. Um, I saw that um, by expanding that and following kind of what was happening in other jurisdictions to include clean tech, we were going to be able to leverage um, what was happening on a federal level. Um, mm. If you, there's some really sort of fundamental thing that says if you make sure that from a provincial basis you have put it in your legislation that this matters to you, then you can actually be at the table when the federal government says, "Hey, we've got this entirely new fund. Would you like to yeah. have some?" <laughs> and, and that's that's exactly yeah, what happens here. Is is um, you know, clean tech opens up. Um, the opportunity for for PEI to to enter into a market space that otherwise it, it can't it can't participate in in the way that it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, now saying that you know the invest the initial investment that we heard the the hint of you know during the um, the state of the province address um, I will have some questions, <laughs> but uh, but but yeah I'm I'm still so thrilled to see that continuity of of. That uh, the thing that I say all the time, my poster is, is a, a gentle pressure, relentlessly applied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's how you make change. You you have to know that that when you show up and you do something here, that's three years later or five years later, you will see that change begin, and then and so it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's evident just even that initial creation of that definition, sorry, both of the definitions and expansion on that uh, Innovation PEI Act, just the how that does as a kind of building block set the stage for both uh, what the provincial government does, but then also what doors open up with the federal government. Another initiative that we've participated with, uh, with the federal government, of, is of course focusing more so um, on transportation. And we saw recently there were a number of different uh, announcements in conjunction with the federal government. One of those items is in relation to electric school buses. Mm-hmm. This was also something we had the opportunity to, uh, you know, discuss with Premier Denny King. And one of the ideas that came out of that is utilizing those new electric school bus fleets to then also be used as and with the staff that would be allotted to that, expanding those part-time bus driving jobs to full-time bus driving jobs and creating a green rural transportation route and and having that cohesive with T3. First question on that new initiative is this is something, you know, we just learned about in, you know, the last 24 (laughs) hours or so. Um, What is opposition's official policy stance on this new proposal? Well, to be honest, it, it's it's too early for us to have a, a, a formal <laughs> official office. <laughs> However, we do we have been very clear um, right back from our platform commitments that that um, a coordinated um, and accessible transit plan for the province was absolutely critical to the economic success and social success of Islanders. Mm-hmm. We are not 
able to effectively support um, our communities across the province, particularly rural communities, if we don't have um, an effective and coherent transit system. Mm-hmm. We also, you know, in terms of sort of platform commitments and 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 uh, policy, are obviously in favour of of of, a, of an electric fleet. Diesel buses are not a solution. Um, and so, you know, I, I would be kind of cautiously optimistic that this is this is the right way to go. In fact, it's you know, along with rural internet, um, a, a, an integrated transit system are is the other factor that we need to ensure the survival of our rural communities. Um, if we 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 are we are would be able to be so much more inclusive as a as a um, as a province in terms of, of rural to urban, if we if we are able to provide appropriate access to internet and appropriate access to transit. It also obviously addresses um, some of the missing gaps in terms of how we take care of some of our more, more vulnerable populations, mm. for instance, seniors who may wish to remain in their home um, rather than having to move into an urban center or and give up their community. Um, and, and, you know, a, a, you know, in terms of our drive to ensure that we can repatriate islanders and welcome newcomers, mm-hmm. um, transit is another key piece of that story. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we we will likely come out with a more formal formal policy piece, but I can be pretty confident that that would it's going to contain those pieces about about this is the right the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Hannah, either at a high level or, or specific to policies such as the one, you know, we've discussed, what does the opposition envision for a green economic recovery here on PEI? Well, we need a vision. This is the first thing. I mean, we, you know, we, we <laughs> being only able to sort of look forward to March is, is not really cutting it. Um, people are really worried and, and, and rightfully so. Um, we have done, a, you know, the government will give full credit to government as both federal and provincial have done a remarkable job of sort of keeping the wheels on the bus and, and so to speak. And, and you know, the, the our health care situation here and, and the, the work of the CPHO has been incredible to make sure that we are and remain one of the safest places in the world. But that doesn't mean that everybody is experiencing or has experienced um, both COVID and what will come afterwards the same way. Mm-hmm. So the bright light has really been shone on, on the really big gaps that we have in our space. I think one of the primary things when I think about recovery are, um, sorry, when I think about a recovery is that that it, we, we cannot go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. It is not, it, it's not really possible but it's also not appropriate that we should be talking about getting back to normal in that everything would be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, for what, from one aspect of that, it's that morally it would not be okay to do that when we know how many gaps we've seen through, through COVID. And from a perspective of um, equity, we know that there have been so many groups and, uh, and areas of our society that, that have been really badly hurt. Um, they were not doing well before and it's gotten way worse for them. And, and I don't see them being reflected in some of the things that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not the time for us to talk about um, business as usual. We, should, we need to be talking about 
who do we need to make sure is at the front of this um, as a priority? So I look, for instance, at the need for us to be providing childcare mm -hmm. and affordable childcare so that women can re-enter the workforce because they have been disproportionately affected by COVID. And if we don't make space for them to be able to re-enter, they can't. Mm -hmm. We know that our students and our young younger population have been devastated by the, the interruption in sort of the normal place that you can go to get to summer jobs and summer employment. And that's reflecting in your ability to remain in, in post-secondary education. Um, as well as, you know, the, 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 just the challenges is sort of keep, you know, again, like, what do you do when your whole life or career has been derailed? So we, so we need to be talking now about where those gaps are. And I think we also need to be asking people, not telling them, but asking them, what do you need us to do for you? Because this is the chance to make spaces that actually work for people um, to make an economy that uh, so to make a, a space that they want to live and work in mm -hmm. um, and and so uh, some of that is about infrastructure you know I expect a green or a, a, a recovery that's that's tinted with green to be one that really focuses on flexibility in the work in the work environment so I, I expect that we will need to get used to the idea that people are going to be more likely to work from home and are going to need the resources to do that that means that the way that our downtowns work is going to change, mm -hmm. right? So maybe we need to think about how we get more people living downtown in our urban areas so that we change the narrative of what does success look like in that area. Mm -hmm. We need to think about um, how and where we provide social services um, because people need more support and service. People are really struggling. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be, wellness is going to be part of our ongoing story of how we recover. Mm -hmm. And I said, childcare is a key piece of that, as is transit and internet access. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's true is that, you know, recovery is going to look different for every group because everyone's been impacted so differently. And, mm. you know, it's not only recovery from COVID, it's recovery from the systems that have existed beyond, yeah. before mm -hmm. COVID and that have disadvantaged people to different extents. Um, and our next theme for, you know, top for our interview today with you is looking at social justice and equity. And this feels like the perfect transition into that. <laughs> so that's perfect. Um, yeah. When we look at the social justice movement, especially on PEI, you know, over the last few years, um, even last summer with the Black Lives Matter March and the indigenous justice movements, there's been a lot of work that's been done, you know, around facilitating facilitating conversations, increasing dialogues, really just getting people talking. But now that we're past that initial conversation space, you know, what does the opposition kind of view as opportunities for policy to increase equity? I think it's about very much about action on following the dialogue. I mean, you know, the, the, you're right, like there has been a lot of conversation um, and, and I think that's a bit of a theme with this government is um, really good at, at talking. Um, I am mindful that, that our premier is a storyteller. Um, <laughs> and as somebody who can use 10 words when one would do, I'm a great talker as well. However, um, you need to be doing. 
And, and you know, we're, we, the official opposition, for example, you know, brought forward a motion which was, which was passed in the House about honoring, you know, the right to a moderate livelihood for our, for our, our, our indigenous fisheries. Um, we need to see that actually happening. I mean, fishing season is coming up this spring. We need to see that this government, which supported that motion, is actually going to continue to do that work. Um, and, and I think those are some of the pieces that that, that we need to um, really hold government to account on. It, and the, you know, with with um, you know the incredible um, uh, support for Black Lives Matter, and then the follow up with you know seeing new organisations actually come into into being and and you know formally kind of create mandate um, and then have that that coherent voice where they took that huge, great big response and then can channel it into knowing that that this is how you get things done in that next stage. You create a, you know, a, a, a megaphone for advocacy through through a, a new organization or new organizations, plural. Mm. Um, government needs to respond to that. You know, the, our NGOs, our non-governmental organizations and non-profits are how most of the work in the province actually gets done. Mm -hmm. And these new organizations are, are, are need to have that space at the table and the funding that, that yeah. goes with it to, to affect their mandate. So, you know, we, we in the same way that we, you know, we, we hold government to account to sort of say, you know, show us, show us what you're doing. That's what I want to see happening uh, here. You know, Peers Alliance is another great organization that has really struggled with not having core funding. And that's, you know, when you're downloading all that work onto the community um, who are already working under the weight of representing or being a part of a, a population which does not have a, a space at the table, uh, the least we can do is provide the support they need to be able to do what they do and then get out of the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I think I completely agree here, especially when we look at, you know, the situation that we're in right now with COVID-19. Um, we know that 20% of nonprofits around Canada either will have, you know, very strongly decreased operations by the end of the pandemic or will shut down entirely, which will create gaps in the services that they provide right now across the country. So definitely agree there, invest more into community groups. Um, so completely agree. Now, when we're talking about equity, you know, oftentimes we tend to think of, you know, racialized groups, we tend to think of women and gender diverse folks, we tend to think of BIPOC communities, but one group of people that has really been very vulnerable this past year has definitely been seniors, where, yeah. you know, there has been a lot of concern around long-term care with outbreaks, you know, across Quebec and Ontario. Of course, in the Maritimes, we've been spared that to a large extent. But, you know, we know that seniors face more isolation and, you know, stronger health risks with the pandemic. Now, we've been lucky in PEI that aside from the Whisperwood Villa, we haven't really had any big um, outbreaks in long-term care. But there's been a number of infrastructural issues that have been raised as to, you know, the conditions that seniors are in, be it, you know, burnout of staff who are required to take care of them in these long-term care facilities, or be it, you know, the lack of nursing staff to ensure that everyone has adequate care. Now, how would you envision kind of revamping the system in order to make sure that seniors are more um, included in the decision-making process? 
Yeah, so that's a it's a really good question, and it's it's a critical one. It's it, uh, to to me, um, our the health and wellness of our seniors is probably the next to me is the next crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I actually spoke to a colleague of mine earlier today and and said that you know what we have a we've heard quite a lot about. Um, what will come after COVID? Or we talked about from the economic perspective, from a social perspective, the next pandemic will be loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a minister of loneliness appointed in England and just yesterday in Japan. Oh, wow. um, and I think that's talking about how other other countries are seeing, you know, what we're seeing here in, on, on another scale, which is our, as our more and more of our, you know, our percentage of, of aging population increases, which we know is, is happening and has been happening for a long time in PEI. This isn't news, you know, the volume, the number of, of seniors that we have, but also that people are, are um, more and more isolated, um, whether it's through COVID or, or, or whatever. We have to think about, um, we have to rethink, you know, how and what, um, care and, and support looks like for, for our senior population. And I come back again to asking seniors what it is that they need uh, and what they want. We, we have a senior secretariat, uh, which most people don't know. Um, and it is a tiny little section within social development and housing. And um, it receives a very small amount of funding, but it actually has a mandate to be a voice for seniors within, within government. Um, and I think it's time we actually started empowering that that secretariat and 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 listening. What I have heard with the the, the constituents that I work with um, is is a real fear about what will happen to what will happen to me is what I hear the most, and that can be because of housing or lack of appropriate housing, not have knowing they don't have enough money mm -hmm. to pay for. The kind of care that they think they may need as they as they age and wanting to stay uh independent so the short answer that was a very long preamble but the short answer is we need to empower seniors to have a life that lives that allows them to live in dignity mm -hmm. and under the circumstances that suit them best mm -hmm. while keeping them safe for as long as possible mm -hmm. and for most seniors that is that they want to stay in their own home if they have a home that they can stay in. So improvements in home care and home support mm -hmm. to allow that to happen. But also we need to have people who are just making sure that people are okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's lots of really creative ways we could do that and, and connect better than we do now. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do really worry, um, personally worry about, about people that I know in my community um, and about what's going to happen to them. And I think everybody does. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that's particularly pertinent too. Um, and I know I sound like a broken record, but, you know, the province of PEI, of course, has a, well, I think Canada writ large in comparison to the rest of the world has an immensely aging population. And, and that's historically been a challenge we've been faced with for the last several decades that's even more heightened uh, on PEI, which is why, you know, we have historically been so aggressive on uh, population growth strategies, immigration, um, now more recently retention, um, because, you know, we, we've learned that, you know, we need to get people here, but we also need to ensure that we can support them and create a, a welcoming community. So I think in, in relation to the seniors piece, it, it's, it's bang on. And I think something that, um, 
will only increase, I think, in terms in terms of need. Um, one thing that we're gonna switch to right now is is something that, um, you know, again, I know I said I think I started at the beginning that you had presented the um, the amendments to the legislative schedule. Another area that you've been very focused on, of course, has been poverty reduction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in a CBC article recently on February 3rd, you had announced the uh, new bill that you folks are presenting, the Poverty Strategy and Elimination Act. Purpose of this bill, full stop, eliminate poverty. Um, now, in the article, you specifically speak to the uh, existing Poverty Reduction Action Plan and, and quote, the action plan has a series of actions, but it doesn't actually have any long-term strategies or targets. And then furthermore, you stated, if you don't have a goal to work towards, then you're checking off a list of activities, but we're not really fundamentally making an impact on a big scale, end quote. So how do you feel as though this new bill, the Poverty Strategy and Elimination Act will differ from the existing plan and you know why do you feel that's something that you folks wanted to propose? Yeah well uh, as you mentioned it, it's um, again been an area that I've been working on this does actually predate me, me being elected is, is something an area that I've worked on um, probably most of my adult life is is in uh, working with um, poverty and, and um, all of the associated projects that that, that may look like. So I'm um, very personally um, committed to doing poverty work uh, in, in the space that I'm in now. Um, and frankly, we need bold and creative approaches to a problem like this in the same way that we do for any other of the wicked problems. You know, we, we have to actually put our money where our mouth is um, and do something reporting on the stats and talking about it and chipping away with existing programs and services doesn't actually ever change overall the, the poverty um, stats. The only fundamental thing that we have done in the last 20, 30 years, um, two things. One of them was the introduction of the child tax benefit through the yeah. federal government, which, which has actually fundamentally changed statistically child poverty, phenomenal. Uh, not enough, but great. Um, and the other thing in PEI that we've done in the last year is the, is the food, school food program, mm. which was one of the actions from the Poverty Action Plan. Mm -hmm. um, but those things are are obviously critical and valuable, but they they're don't in any way on a grand scale help us address the overall issues, which are complicated and systemic and um, hard. What this strategy does is make a very clear framework uh, with accountability um, for and, and mark tech, uh, targets and measures. So the government um, is actually legally re required to act. Mm -hmm. In the same way that we had the Climate Leadership Act passed last year, which my colleague Lynn Lund brought forward and, and, and had passed, it, it sets out what is needed to be done, mm -hmm. a time frame and targets and who is responsible. Mm. It doesn't tell you how, um, because that's government's responsibility to, to deliver, create and deliver uh, within that framework. But it says that you have to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and we have seen with climate, with bringing in climate targets, that a, a tangible, clear goal does actually result then in policy and action. 
Mm -hmm. um, and, and frankly, we're following the same model. The, the key thing with this is that we have chosen to use the word elimination rather than reduction, which is usually what you see in most of these other pieces of legislation. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a conscious decision. We asked for that actually back in the original throne speech and did have the word elimination included in the throne speech. And a simple statement on that is when you reduce, you do not address the whole problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, nor anyone else, should be comfortable with choosing who remains in poverty and who does not. Mm -hmm. And and that was something that definitely, when this article had come out earlier in the month, you know, piqued my interest. And it makes you reflect on, you know, the, the power of words, really, like mm -hmm. the difference between reduce poverty or eliminate poverty. Reduce suggests the fact that you're okay that some people live in poverty. Yeah. Now, whether that be, you know, for a number of reasons, different folks have different ideas. Some people, you know, feel as though it's it's something that's unavoidable and it's or it's just, you know, a natural result of the way in which our society operates, um, you know, or some people feel like, you know, there are only specific areas that we could target and there's some things that, you know, government simply can't address. You know, these are a number of different perspectives that some people have, but elimination suggests that, yes, this is something that we're not okay with, A, creating in our society because it is a creation it's it's not a it's not a result of something it's something we create and also um sustain too in in one way or another um and i think too and to get to my question because this isn't about me um you know <laughs> it, it seems like a no-brainer i mean yeah. who who wants to live in a society where people you know or your government you know empowers or contributes to creating poverty you know, it, it makes sense that they'd want to get rid of it. Everyone can be empowered to reach their full potential and and create a, you know, a supported and, you know, diverse community without poverty. Um, but that being said, um, not everyone feels that way. Again, like I said, for one reason or another. So some people may see this as out of reach. Some people may see this as too ambitious. And some people may see it as, you know, all of the above and, and just something that's not doable. Um, what's the type of feedback you folks have received thus far? Um, as I know you folks have been and soliciting feedback uh, in the last month since this was announced. And what do you anticipate will be the feedback from government or third party simply due to the fact that I think it'd be really hard in the position of government or third party to say, no, we don't want to totally eliminate poverty. Now, I don't know if you feel <laughs> that way, but it's just something that's crossed my mind so frequently that I wanted to share. Well, well, it's never stopped government or the third party before, so why start now? The, um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I mean, there has been a number of really interesting conversations and and uh remarkably uh, there's a lot of opposition to there's a lot of pushback to really? a bill like this um not so much because it's coming from opposition but just because of what it is mm -hmm. generally the feedback you know from public consultation has been overwhelmingly positive um because people can see themselves in here and i think a large piece of this is that there are, there are a large chunk of this is going to be about education, not just for the public, but 
for government too, probably mostly for government, because there's so much um, assumption around around really basic thoughts and ideas. I mean, a lot of this started in the House right back from when I brought forward an amendment to the Employment Standards Act to improve to add measures of poverty to how we determine the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. which sounds really, really wonky, but but the reason why that matters is because the discussion on the floor among legislators was, well, what do you mean by poverty? And we don't have that problem here. Wow. So I have spent a huge amount of time explaining to people who should know better that there are thousands of islanders who do not have enough to live on. Mm-hmm. And... Yes, there are there are five and a half thousand people who receive social assistance, but there are actually fifteen thousand people more who are working, who are poor, mm-hmm. and then there are ten thousand seniors who are poor, and then there are fifteen thousand children mm-hmm. who are poor. So we have a real problem with actually understanding and seeing poverty all around us all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know that it's there because people are really good at hiding it. It's part of our culture. Um, it's systemic mm-hmm. and it is absolutely not okay. Mm-hmm. It's not okay that there's one in five children in PEI every day who don't have enough food mm-hmm. or any food. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the food island. We literally exported one and a half billion dollars worth of food and we can't feed people who live and work here. We can't feed our kids. Mm-hmm. And I have spoken to far too many mothers who tell me about what it's like when you don't have enough food to feed your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a real a real problem with with actually seeing what life is really like for people who aren't us. And mm-hmm. um, that's partly uh, the barrier for this is that there are people who make decisions um, who are not able to have the lived experience or know anybody with the lived experience to understand that we actually really need this legislation. We really need to be doing this work. Mm-hmm. And it is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the some of the more uh, pushback from from a legislative perspective is going to be that the targets are too aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, the targets are actually really similar, even down to the years, to the targets that other jurisdictions in Canada have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the longer you leave it, the work still has to be done. So the sooner you get started, mm-hmm. yay. Um, so I, I'm not sort of too. Uh, um, I'm not. I don't feel that those targets should change. I think we need aggressive targets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think overall, it, yeah, you, you would hope that it is, there is a moral obligation mm-hmm. to do this. The, the idea that it's not clear how is also really challenging for some people, yeah. but we don't, because we don't clearly say, and here's the things you're going to do, um, that can be really tough, but you know what, we, we did that for climate change and that was fine. Mm-hmm. So if we can do it to talk about getting to net zero. We can do it for how to figure out how to address poverty. And, and you know, one of the big pieces around this is that there is no one tool um, or solution that, you know, the, the solution to addressing poverty is going to be a whole bunch of different tools mm-hmm. that address a whole bunch of different needs. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we need to do is actually figure out who and where 
people are that need help mm -hmm. and then provide programs and services to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's 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 really um, a large amount of work, but it's completely doable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of this work starts really at the conversation around poverty itself. It feels like, you know, any form of discrimination you're looking at decreasing, but if someone is low income, then somehow it's their fault that they're low income. And, and you know, that's a conversation that needs to change from the start. Yeah. And really the definition and measures of poverty in itself where everyone likes to think they're middle class and that's not true for a lot of people um looking at you know how many how much you need to have in savings to be able to live comfortably looking at just the dialogue around poverty i think needs to change and you know this bill seems like a way to change that dialogue so i think we're pretty excited to see it come on the floor and to see what it has mm -hmm. now, this episode is actually going to be coming out on March 8th, which is International Women's Day 2021. So we have to have a question on that. Now, the theme for this year is choose to challenge. Mm -hmm. um, now, can you tell us, you know, what is something that you like to um, dare listeners to challenge this year? <laughs> oh, good question. <laughs> choose to challenge. Well, I, I get asked a lot about being um, a woman in non-traditional roles, which is something I've done my whole life. So, you know, for those who who haven't heard my life story, haha. Uh, um, <laughs> the short, the really short version is that I'm a I'm a computer engineer who uh, traveled exclusively with Medicine Sans Frontieres and. Um, then became a software expert and then ran a nonprofit and now I'm a politician. So most of the spaces that I've occupied are, are not ones that women are usually in. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the barriers often, particularly for women in professional fields is, is our own confidence. Mm -hmm. um, there's a confidence competence conversation. Um, and so when I think about um, challenging people, women in particular, it's I, 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 it's I think it would be around that getting out of your comfort zone, which sounds like a like a, a cliche, but it's not. You have to actually go and do stuff that is really scary, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it is because you can. You might not think that you can, and you might not do it very well, and that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. um, I I spend a lot of time, not as much as I'd like anymore. Cause, time but I spent I used to spend a lot more time mentoring um, women particularly in uh, professionals um, and a lot of the time it would be to sort of say well it's okay if you don't get it 100% right it's okay if it doesn't go exactly like you thought it would mm -hmm. it's okay if you kind of if you screw it up and you're a bit embarrassed you get to laugh and do it again so I challenge people I mentor to go and do things um, that they don't feel that they are ready to do yet mm -hmm. or that are scary. So maybe that's that's the thing. Maybe it's challenging people who are thinking about public service to give me a call and go for a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. You can do this too. <laughs> you're, you're just reminding me of a quote. I really don't know where I saw this. And it's, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing badly because it's better than doing nothing. So yeah. I don't know. Nice. Yeah, I like yeah, that. and I'm and I'm I'm a real doer. You know, <laughs> but I'm also um, I I'm really hard on myself. Of, of you know, uh, that's it's a character <laughs> defect. But um, but you know, you can turn it into a positive. I have a I have a great post, another poster, um, and it's um, done is better than perfect. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you can, I don't know, like, you know, when you're writing a paper and you can, you can kind of keep editing and polishing because it's never, and, and now it's late, right? <laughs> because you were, you were going over and over and you know what, getting it, get an 80 on it, hand it in, that's fine. Mm-hmm. No one's going to check your grade at the end anyway, get it done <laughs> and, and hand it in and then you can do the next one. So, so a lot of my um, success in terms of getting stuff done Mm-hmm. I use another word instead of stuff, but you know we're we're gonna go for the PG rating. Um, a lot of my success is is in is in go to the next project, get the project done, finish the project, go to the next project. It's okay if it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It's probably still really good, mm-hmm. right? So so yeah, that's the that's the challenge is is do the project. You know, start the podcast. <laughs> Say yes when you get asked if you run for that nomination. <laughs> And on this lovely note, I think this is the perfect time to end kind of the formal part of our interview with you today. Now, we do have a second, more informal, shorter part, um, and that's what we call our beer panel. Now, this segment has really taken on a life of its own in the last many episodes where not everyone is talking about beer. People are talking about anything they want, and, you know, we'd really like to encourage that. So, you know, it's just making a recommendation to our listeners. Now, as our very special guest, would like to invite you to go first. Is there <laughs> a beer, restaurant, food, anything you'd like to recommend? Oh, well, well, in my district, I am blessed to have two breweries. Uh, I have Upstreet and I have the PEI Brewing Company. Whoa. I know. Two I mean, hard hitters. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, yeah. And they're like two kilometers apart. Like, it's like you could you could stagger. <laughs> Not that I would ever do that. But um, so the um, the Brewing Company does my, my favorite um, kind of hanging out at the back deck drink and that's colliding tide the yeah. gin twist one yeah mm-hmm. but uh yeah yeah gotta that's just fabulous way too easy to drink but really awesome <laughs> um and upstreet um have more than one favorite i really love ruby social and the poster like the the logo thing is so cool i keep meaning to buy one of the posters and then they never have it and then i get really annoyed but yeah so mitch mitch if you're listening i want a ruby social poster um and uh, mitch cobb and i were in the same mba program at upei so oh, yeah cool. yeah so street cred um they also do yes yeah see, I'm, I'm cooler than i look uh, they also do um a really uh uh, they do a, a, a unique brew every year for International Women's Day. And yes. I think the one this year is called Pink Boots. Um, I just saw a post about it, but I but I I don't know which one it is, but there will be something really cool. And it's the women of Upstreet who who do like the, all the, the imagineering and the brewing and stuff. So that's really neat. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, lucky me that, I, that like, you know, like, I can go from home and I, I walk my dog um, in the experimental farm. It's just uh, like across the end of my street, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I could sort of do a detour and go to Upstreet or I can go the other way from the end of my street through the cemetery and then I'm at the brewing company. Mm-hmm. So my dog is well recognized. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only other thing I'll do a quick shout out to, especially that goes really well with the, with the Ruby Social are hand pies. I have been since the very beginning a huge PEI hand, company, hand pie company, hand pie fan. And Sarah, who is the hand pie genius, actually um, 
had her original restaurant was called Scapes, which mm -hmm. she created through a GoFundMe campaign. But she was one of the participants at um, a women's uh, business retreat that I did when I was with the brewing company, with the brewing company. Oh my God, <laughs> <I'm thinking about laughs> beer. <laughs> I, did when I was with the Business Women's Association uh, um, and it was uh, Camp Dynamo that was held out at um, wow. Galway and it was a way for sort of women entrepreneurs to get together and, and they just like absolutely awesome. And the hand pie company was born at Camp Dynamo. Whoa. Yeah. So, That's so, so cool. Sarah made that amazing pivot. And oh, yeah, just so many awesome things came out. Honestly, that's another whole episode. I can tell you so much. I have so much gossip. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, between the the dog walks in the graveyard, uh, the street cred with Mitch at Upstreet, and then, uh, uh, of course, Sarah <laughs> with the Hand Pie Co. And kind of like, I wouldn't say helped birth hampi co but you know facilitated you know that whole camp that kind of created and launch padded it so um that's really cool that's that's yeah. really cool yeah. wow awesome and yeah. um just for the record i do agree i much prefer the gen twist to the vodka twist for colliding tides i think it's it's a lot better um yeah. i think i've mentioned ruby social multiple times on this show <laughs> already as well it's it's one of my favorites and while you were saying you know that it goes very well with the hand pie i was thinking about um the times when the hand pie company used to have hand pies available at craft beer corner so we yeah. really could order oh, yeah. your social and your hand pie at the same time now of course in town there's still a riverview market so that's yeah. still awesome yeah. Um, the beer I'd like to recommend today is currently not in season, but it's still from Upstreet um, and it's Island Hospitality. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I think this is one of the beers that um, I used to order quite regularly whenever we were at Trivia back when I was a student. So we'd go to the campus pub, the Fox and Crow on a Wednesday, and it was, you know, just the perfect drink to go while trying to answer questions. And I don't know, maybe I'm thinking a bit nostalgic, but that's the one I'd like to recommend today. <laughs> Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, Sweta, you friggin' read my mind because I was <laughs> I was texting um, our dear friend Mike Malali, who is the manager at the Fox and Crow earlier today. Anyways, I want to give a big shout out to the Fox and Crow. I, I love Mike and the whole staff down there. They have such an awesome student pub and it's such a inclusive space just yeah. for, uh, you know, working, for studying, for meeting, for relaxing. It really has everything. And and I think Mike has just brought such an expertise uh, as a graduate of the Holland College Hospitality, International Hospitality Program. So anyways, he's awesome. And I have to recommend, and this is, I think, speaks to how great Mike is, um, you know, you know, in terms of a person, Sweat and I both love the Major Tom Sour, which is going to be my recommendation today. And it is a seasonal from Upstreet, and it's it's just a straight up sour. It's got a spooky kitty in an astronaut suit on the cover. And Sweat and I were, I think, the only two people who drank that beer, and it was stopped, especially for us. Yes, and Ooh. so Mike went out of his way, and so he did that on a number of different times. He did that for the Major Tom, but also the Vic Park, which is my other favorite. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm also nostalgic for a major Tom. And um, yeah, so <laughs> well, I'll be. So now I'm going to have to go with you the next time that like, he has it all. <laughs> because, because also, Fox and Crow is also, well, UPEI is also in my district. So That's I, mean, right. I could totally add that into the pub crawl round. <laughs> Whoa, sorry. I totally forgot yeah. that that's in the district. So you could, you could walk through uh, the experimental farm bank a left to up street then go up to the pub go in behind the university then cut across to the cemetery yeah. and then hit bruco or a combination go. thereof there you go and meanwhile my dog will be looking at me going like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like you know a nice little walk for the summer honestly <laughs> Yeah, maybe not so much when I'm so slugging through snowdrifts, but uh, but yeah, yeah, no, no, I like, I like, I like this idea. This is a good, this is a good plan. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Hannah. We've we've taken so much of your time this evening, and we know you you had a busy day today and have many other projects on the go. And then, of course, in about I think less than forty eight hours, maybe at 30, 32, 32 mm -hmm. hours is the opening, the official opening of the legislature. We're really excited to to air this episode. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. I'm happy to happy to participate and look forward to having uh, another 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 time. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Hannah. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And that's all the time that we have for today, folks. With this, it's a wrap on our lead-up to the legislature series. Now, as we mentioned earlier, this episode was recorded two days before the start of the spring sitting of the ledge. And since then, suffice to say, the session has been in full swing. We hope this mini-series has helped you follow along with the proceedings and that you, like us, have learned something new. As always, our music is by the very talented Shane Pendergast, his second album, Second Wind, is now available on all streaming platforms. You can listen to it live on March 23rd at 8 p.m. at Trailside in Charlottetown. Tickets for that are available on Eventbrite. We're still in a circuit breaker phase right now, so we hope you're staying warm and staying safe. This has been Dialogue.